This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Eiko Maruko Sinawer, professor of history at Williams College. Dr. Sinawer is the author of Ruffians, Yakuza, Nationalists, The Violent Politics of Modern Japan, 1860 to 1960, published by Cornell University Press in 2008, as well as Waste, Consuming Postwar Japan, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Dr. Sinaworth, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thanks, Tristan. It's my pleasure. Your research has explored the politics of the Meiji period and more recently has gone into waste in the post-war period as well, but really looking at politics with an emphasis on political violence. And political history isn't something that's been explored too much in this podcast series so far. So I was hoping we might be able to talk about some of the big developments in Meiji politics. When you look at Meiji political history, what are those big themes and big stories? I think one way of getting at the big developments in Meiji political history might be to think about the big questions of Meiji politics and the big questions that were asked at that time. And I think if we look at you know the very beginning of the Meiji period uh, in 1868, there were a lot of questions that were open. There were a lot of things that were very much undecided. So we often point to you know the emperor's declaration of an, an imperial quote unquote restoration in January of 1868 uh, as a kind of key moment uh, of of the kind of marking the start of, of the Meiji period, but. You know, there's a civil war that continues on into June of 1869. So this new Meiji government is dealing with that for the next year and a half or so. And even when we talk about, you know, the Meiji government, it really was not well formed in early 1868. There's, you know, a modest government in Kyoto. There's an outpost in Edo. And, you know, as the Civil War develops, there are these command stations in the Northeast. And also the Meiji Restorationists, the leaders of the Meiji Restoration, also had bases of support in their home domains in the Southwest. But there wasn't uh, an elaborate, complicated structure that we would call the Meiji government. It did not emerge fully formed in, in 1868. So one of the questions was, what was the Meiji polity going to look like? How was the realm going to be governed? How was the country going to be governed? Who would participate in politics? What would be the nature of that politics? And so there were many questions that were open and undecided at this moment in 1868. And so one of the stories of Meiji politics is the construction, the consolidation of the Meiji state. And this doesn't start happening right away. There are, you know, in the earliest Meiji years, there the government is just kind of trying to get by and figure things out and pay its bills, etc. But starting in the early 1870s or so, you really start to see the beginnings of the kind of construction of the Meiji state. So, for example, in the early 1870s, if you look at 1871, when the domains were abolished and replaced with prefectures. And if we look at 1872, when elementary education was made compulsory, there you see also the Meiji state kind of extending its reach there. In 1873, when military conscription was instituted. So those were all kind of examples of 
the Meiji state in its early years really kind of solidifying its base and its control, kind of disciplining of, of its subjects. And then, though, concurrent with the development of the Meiji state, you have resistance to this state. And some of this was initially, or at least one stream of this, was, you might say, kind of largely reactionary. So, for example, the rebellions by former samurai in the 1870s, these you could think of as largely reactionary attempts by former samurai to regain power and prestige that they had lost in the face of what to them were, you know, assertive and alarming reforms on the part of the Meiji government. So there's a kind of feeling of economic insecurity, a loss of status, there's xenophobia there as well. And what many former samurai were responding to was, for example, you know, the conversion of their stipends of what were samurai stipends to bonds, prohibition against wearing swords in public, uh, school children, samurai school children had to cut off their top knots. These were all developments kind of in the mid 1870s. And so you see a string of rebellions by former samurai, you know, the Saga Rebellion, the Shimpuden Rebellion. Akizuki, Hagi, and then most famously the the Satsuma Rebellion, or what could be called the Southwestern War in 1877. So that was kind of reactionary to the Meiji government's reforms. But there was also at the same time a sense that claims could be made on the Meiji government and that those claims could involve the expansion of political participation. So not only that people had a voice, but some sense that their voice could change something about the course of, of Meiji politics. So most well-known would be you know, the Jiu Minken Undo, or the Freedom and People's Rights Movement, or what could sometimes also called the Popular Rights Movement, which was a diverse and kind of loosely associated series of efforts to challenge in some ways, ch- this challenged the solidification of the Meiji state's power or to challenge the concentration of power in a handful of Meiji political leaders. And so you have, starting in the mid-1870s and through the 1880s, a concerted effort to shape the nature of politics and to push back against the Meiji government and the Meiji state. And so it's out of this tension between the kind of centripetal force of you know, state formation and the kind of contestation, uh, and in some cases, grassroots contestation, that really shapes the large developments of the Meiji period. And it's really that dynamic, I think, that leads to and influences, for example, the Constitution that's promulgated in 1889, uh, the opening of the Diet or the Parliament in 1890. So over even in the kind of early part of the Meiji period, in the early decades of the Meiji period, you have this dynamic that has already led to, I would argue, you know, the development of a civil society, the development of a sense of nation and national identity, of subjecthood to some extent of citizenship. And you have also then the development of constitution, parliament, political parties. And that's a really great point about how the Meiji state doesn't come into being as this kind of preformed thing. 
I remember reading, I think it was the diary of Kido Takayoshi, where he's kind of talking about how many of the decisions made by the government are, are really just him and a few other guys just sitting around at his house, essentially. <laughs> I mean, there isn't a place, right? There is no government building yet. There really isn't this preformed Meiji government. And that that really kind of, you know, is a nice reminder that this narrative of the Meiji state as as being this monolithic being where everybody's on the same page isn't really all that true. In, in fact, you know, we get this narrative of the Meiji success story, where maybe because of, of this emphasis on modernization, you know, we see everything as just being every, everybody on the same page, everyone's working toward the same goal. But, you know, there has been work that, that points out, and, and like you said, you know, we should remember that the Meiji state wasn't all that monolithic. Instead, there's a lot of competition and conflict between all of these people. Yeah, you seem to be suggesting also that there's conflict not just between those outside of the government and the government, but also between those that, you know, we would see as the kind of governing elite as well. I think the other thing to think about, in addition to the fact that, you know, the Meiji government is not birthed fully formed, is that we tend to have a kind of image of kind of the gentlemanly elite of Meiji. And I and that's usually gendered precisely in that way. Uh, and we think about you know the, the kind of thinkers of the Meiji period, the the political leaders of the era, and I I think that is somewhat kind of problematic in the sense that you know the, this gentlemanly elite they were also kind of had their hands dirty in the practice of politics, and a practice of politics that was quite violent and messy and conflictual, and uh, one example of a severe and serious conflict within the Meiji governing elite was the debate, what's called you know, the Seikanon debate of 1873, which really just kind of split the Meiji government apart. I mean, here was a situation where you had basically kind of two groups of Meiji leaders who had very different views on how to handle a particular issue and how to proceed. So I mean, I think if we were going to look for the roots of the Seikanon schism, if we want to call it that, in 1873, we'd have to go back to the Iwakura mission of 1871. And the Iwakura mission in itself was quite remarkable. I mean, the idea that many of the leaders of the Restoration and the leaders then of the Meiji government would take off and leave behind this young government that they had just formed and that they would leave for months to go to the U.S., Britain, France, Germany, other countries in Europe, ostensibly to talk about revision of the unequal treaties from the 1850s, but also to learn about schools and factories, etc. That in itself was remarkable. And what it created, I think, was that a kind of difference, a divergence between the group that went on the Iwakura mission and the group of Meiji leaders that stayed in Japan, a kind of caretaker government, as it was called. And so the group that went on the Iwakuna mission, I think many of them, what they learned was the importance of selective adaptation, adoption of Western models, but that that should be gradual and careful and deliberate and managed by a strong state. And the caretaker government, in comparison, was quite, you could call it more uh, impetuous in a way. A lot of the kind of revolutionary reforms that we associate with 
the early 1870s or the work of the caretaker government, for example. And so when it comes to the question of the Seikanlong question, which was, you know, what to do with the proposal that the caretaker government had already had already accepted, but there was a proposal to dispatch Saigo Takamori, one of the kind of leaders of the restoration, to Korea to solicit the Korean recognition of the Meiji government. And so the question was whether or not to proceed with this or not. And the caretaker government, those of the caretaker government were very supportive of this idea. And those of more kind of pragmatic inclination, those who had been part of the Iwakura delegation, were opposed. They were opposed not because they were nervous about the prospect of or not supportive of the prospect of some kind of military confrontation with Korea. That was not the problem. It was more about timing and you know, Japan's military preparedness, the financial expenses, what would mean in terms of sacrifice of, of other priorities. So you have a really profound disagreement about what to do here. And it's the more pragmatic side that ends up winning this debate, if you will. And that leads to Saigo Takamori resigning from his governmental posts, and not just Saigo, but many others as well. And so here you have a very clear example of a very, very deep conflict and disagreement within the early Meiji government that, in fact, really kind of splits it in a profound way. That's a great point about the caretaker government as well, because all of these, as, as you mentioned, a lot of these revolutionary reforms of the Meiji period, all of this rapid modernization and westernization, if we want to call that, that occurs during the Meiji period is actually d- installed by the caretaker government. I mean, many of these reforms date to 1872, 1873, while the Iwakura mission is away. Yeah. And it's it's remarkable that, that the caretaker government isn't more of a, a big topic. We often talk about the Iwakura mission as this example of Japan going out and in in some ways seeing the future and just talking about, oh, you know, let's bring back all of these things to jumpstart Japanese modernization. But it's really the caretaker government back home that is implementing all of these radical reforms. Yeah. And, you know, there was a kind of agreement before the Iwakura delegation left on its mission that no you know, major decisions would be made <laughs> right, right. Uh, while while the delegation was away. And in fact, that really was not the case at all. And so basically, you have a kind of group of guys back in Japan who are are spearheading all kinds of reforms and discussions, you know, about about compulsory education, about military conscription, etc. So yeah, it is kind of quite remarkable. And even things that we might say incredibly superficial, putting Japan on the Gregorian yeah. calendar, adopting clock time, you know, all these things. And and in some in some cases, things that when the ambassadors came back, they weren't all that impressed with, right? I mean, there's the, the famous example of Iwakura Tomomi, who's talking about how he sees this all as kind of superficial and, you know, doesn't think that Japan should be moving ahead too quickly. And so you do kind of wonder if these things would have been adopted had the Iwakura mission members still been in Japan. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the kind of criticism of reforms as superficial or certainly as 
too rushed or radical mm-hmm. was made from right. by by members of the mission upon upon their return. Uh, we tend now to think of changes like you know different notions of time in the Gregorian calendar as as quite significant in terms of thinking about the ways that that disciplines people's daily lives. But at the time, yeah, this kind of criticized as being, well, is this really what the country should be focusing on and thinking about at this moment in time? And you were talking before about the popular rights movement and as an example of one type of resistance. And again, you know, we as historians now, when we look back, you know, we'll oftentimes we'll see this as the evidence of a grassroots push for democracy in Japan. I mean, is that what you're reading into the popular rights movement? Or is this more of, you know, in some cases, the samurai who leave the government as a result of the Seikonron debates who are just trying to get back into the government? Or is there actually something to this idea that people in the countryside really were desiring more involvement in the government? I think that the freedom and, and people's rights movement is is quite complicated and is neither just a, a kind of elite movement nor grassroots or kind of, you know, the kind of strategic uh, movements by, by elites. As you mentioned, out of the Saikanon debate, you had the split not just between the caretaker government and those who are on the Iwakura mission, but those who left the Meiji government after the Saikanon issue was decided also in some ways went on to have very different kind of political futures and different commitments. Because you have, among those who left the government, someone like Saigo Takamori, who you know, led the, the Satsuma Rebellion, the Southwestern War of 1877. But you also had, of those who left the Meiji government, those who spearheaded the freedom and people's rights movement. So you know people like Itagaki Taisuke and Goto Shojiro, who are really leaders of what I would think about as the kind of initial and elite phase of the freedom and people's rights movement. You know, they form a political party called the Aikoku Koto, the Patriotic Public Party, which submits a proposal for establishing a kind of popularly elected assembly, and that's in, you know, in 1874. So that strand of the popular rights movement definitely has kind of elite origins. You think about also intellectual circles that were thinking about ideas about of liberalism and democracy, etc. But then you also have another phase of the freedom and people's rights movement that really develops later in the 1870s that is truly grassroots, that consists of farmers and merchants and school teachers who debated about issues of you know, representative government and democracy and liberalism, and who wrote their own constitutions, their kind of own visions for what they thought a constitution should look like. And so that's very much grassroots. And then you have a kind of another phase of the freedom of people's rights movement that sometimes gets separated out from it, and I think mistakenly so. Uh, In the early 1880s, you have a series of what are usually called the violent incidents or the gekkajiken of the popular rights movement, where you have farmers mixing with local people's rights groups, with sometimes radical wings of the Liberal Party or the Jiuto, to protest both financial issues, kind of financial indebtedness, but also to agitate for and make the case for 
popular rights. So there is a mix of classes, there's a mix of interests and motivations. And so there's a kind of complicated, diverse, loosely associated set of efforts that we now kind of think of under this umbrella of the, of the freedom and people's rights movement. They're all, I think, united by this desire to challenge and to forestall the concentration of power in the hands of a handful of, of Meiji leaders. And that's another great point about the violence that comes along with the freedom and popular rights movement in the 1880s. You have, you know, the 1884 big Chichibu riot. And you know, there, it does kind of get downplayed in the historiography. Maybe, you know, we don't want to remember that democracy brings a lot of violence sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And I think there were activists who were part of the freedom and people's rights movement who were called, you know, soshi or what we might kind of think of as, as political ruffians, especially in the 1880s. And these, you could think of them as ruffians, you could think of them as activists. They would do things like storm political gatherings, political meetings and speech meetings had become a common practice at this time. And soshi would go and disrupt them, they would threaten and intimidate political opponents. They would also then protect political allies against the ruffians associated with political foes. And, you know, these were, if you kind of think about the prototypical soshi or political ruffian slash activist at this time, is someone who was known for a kind of rough demeanor and long hair and loud voices and dirty and torn clothes, etc. So they were very much part of the kind of activism and violence of the freedom and people's rights movement. Speaking of these ruffians, of course, your first book was about the ruffians and Yakuza and some of the violence of politics in the Meiji period. But more recently, you've published this book on trash and garbage <laughs> and waste in post-war Japan. So can you talk about how you made that transition? And, and is there some kind of connective tissue or connecting themes between this violence of the politics and post-war trash? It's the most concrete question that I get asked about the connection is about kind of Yakuza involvement in the waste management industry, um, and particularly with dealing with hazardous waste. Uh, and while that that is a kind of thread of continuity, uh, at least in terms of my own intellectual history and the history of these projects, there is not so much of a connection. I think the intellectual thread is just my personal fascination with phenomenon that or phenomena that seem at first not so visible, uh, underground, uh, unsavory in some way, but if you start to look at them, are ubiquitous. So I think with the with the first book on kind of political violence and ruffian types and their involvement in politics. There's a way in which Yakuza sometimes, you know, other ruffian, ruffian-like figures are sometimes thought of and talked about as an underworld, uh, as being underground somehow, and have not been, as we've, as we've been talking about, not so prominent in the historiography. 
we don't, when we think of Meiji politics, think of brawls in the streets and guys with sticks hitting each other and fist fights in on the diet floor. What we think of are, you know, are things, the moments like the promulgation of the Constitution and this dignified ceremony in 1890, etc. So there's something, perhaps to the historian even, that is somehow unsavory about it, but that the more that you dig into it, the more that you see it acting in politics in this case. And then also that comes back and challenges the notion of it being, having been invisible at the time, that actually there's a kind of realization of how very visible violence and use of physical force was in, in politics, in Meiji politics. And I think that's similar with the Waste Project. Uh, I started the Waste Project looking a little bit more literally at garbage and trash. I had originally thought that I was going to do a kind of history of, of garbage from kind of Meiji period through to the present day. And there's a kind of story of, da- of garbage being dangerous in a kind of hygienic sense, but also wanting to push garbage out of sight questions about where are you putting garbage dumps, where should incinerators be, be situated and sited, etc. So there too, there is something unsavory about garbage. But then if you kind of think about garbage in day-to-day life, and especially as I expanded my conception of garbage to be not just kind of physical waste, but to think about waste writ large, you know, what was considered waste in Japan and what was considered wasteful and how did those conceptions change over time, then you start to realize that these decisions about waste, not just the kind of physical presence of waste, but decisions that we make about waste and wastefulness, uh, what we consider to be waste and wastefulness, are very much bound up in many of the decisions that we make about day-to-day life. And looking at the history of Tokyo in particular, I mean, of course, in the 1970s, there was a huge environmental crisis in Tokyo, with the amounts of pollution. And for the most part, the Japanese government did a very good job of cleaning up some of this waste. But it comes back in, in curious ways. And, and just recently in the news, of course, the Tsukiji market was shut down and it's moving to this place in Toyosu. But then there was a bit of a controversy about that because that's an old gas plant. And so there's actually contaminants within the soil underneath the new Tsukiji yeah. market. So even the waste, you know, you can put it somewhere else, but it, it never really goes away. No, that's right. And I mean, if you think about how much of Tokyo is also built on uh, a kind of, you know, landfill. If you think about, you know, some of the parks and recreation areas in the Koto Ward, for example, are built upon kind of layers and layers of, of trash that have been thrown away in the 1960s, 1970s, for example. So it is something that does not, it does not disappear uh, and becomes part of the kind of physical landscape, public health landscape. The book is centrally about kind of questions in the post-war period from the mid-1940s to the present day of what's been considered to be waste and wasteful and how that has shifted and why. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with with the book is to highlight the idea, the concept of waste. So the book is not so much about a thing, waste, 
although it does deal with garbage and resources, etc., but about the conception of waste and how that's shifted. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to think about developments in the post-war period, um, you know, economic growth, mass consumption, changing notions of affluence through the lens of this concept of waste. And so that's, that's one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book. Another thing that I'm trying to do in the book is to think about the post-war period as a period. I think historians, we've started to move further and further forward in time so that we are now kind of moving into the 1970s. And, you know, there are some historians who've been working on the kind of lost decades of the 1990s, 2000s a little bit. But there's a way in which, especially the kind of latter half of the post-war period, has really been the domain of anthropologists and sociologists and political scientists. And what I'd like to propose, and what I propose in the book, is that it's now time to think about what is now a very long period from 1945 to the present, and to think about whether there is whether there are themes, developments that make make sense to kind of think of this period as a cohesive period. And one of the things that I would suggest is that one characteristic of the post-war period is that there's a fundamental tension between the desires and the allures of economic growth and financial affluence and the conveniences, the comforts of a middle-class life and also a profound discomfort with the costs and the consequences of that very affluence. And so I tried to kind of trace this over the post-war period, and there are various ways in which understandings of waste shift. And I'm looking at waste not just of things, but also of resources and of time. And so, you know, in the 1940s, in the mid-1940s, just after the war, in the immediate post-war years, there's not much concern about waste, as you might imagine. Because people are recovering from the war, there's widespread starvation and poverty, there's not, in a sense, the luxury to think about waste. You have to use everything that you have. Uh, You're living in a time of scarcity So you weren't plagued by questions about waste and wastefulness. And so a lot of the writing in the late 1940s, mid-late 1940s, even into the early 1950s, is about, you know, for example, how do you not waste food? How do you use every part of, you know, a daikon radish or an eggplant? How do you create substitute foods for goods that you can't get? And so really it's about living in a time of scarcity and poverty and n- no waste by, because of the exigencies of the, of the circumstances. And then in the 19, later in the 1950s and into the 1960s is when there starts to be uh, the opportunity to think about, well, what consumption is okay and what consumption is wasteful and not okay? Is it okay to buy the washing machine or the television set? Uh, and so the con- kind of ideas of waste 
become more flexible at the same time that you have continued concern with, you know, efficiency on um, the factory line, efficiency in the white collar workplace. Uh, so no, no, not wasting in the context of, of work, but when it comes to consumption, that there are more difficult questions about what is acceptable to consume and spend money on and then eventually discard uh, in a time of kind of rising incomes. And then I think in the early 1970s, the early 1970s are another pivot point where there's a combination of two shocks. One is uh, the what's called the Tokyo War on Garbage in 1971. The governor of Tokyo in that year, in 1971, kind of declared war against garbage, uh, which at its heart was about the need for incinerators in Tokyo and debates about where they would be placed, but also expanded into broader questions about the costs and the consequences of high-speed economic growth, about the toll that that had taken on the environment, about the culture of disposability that it had created, and about the sheer amount of stuff that was now being discarded. And stuff that was also included more plastics, which were a problem in terms of incineration, and so on. So, um, you know, the kind of the outputs of this culture of disposability. And the second shock was the oil crisis of 1973, which was really a kind of wake-up call in terms of realizing that the kind of what had helped fuel high-speed economic growth, the, the resources, uh, were in fact finite. And so there is in the 1970s greater attention to waste of various kinds, waste of electricity, waste in terms of you know the need to recycle garbage because there were still resources embedded in the garbage that were being thrown away, and so on. At the same time, though, even as there was more attention to waste and wastefulness in the 1970s, there was a strong sense that this attention to waste, this waste consciousness, was not to look like the waste consciousness of the wartime years, that it was not supposed to mean going without. It was not supposed to resemble a life of poverty, but that you know, waste consciousness uh, the purpose of waste consciousness was to defend middle-class lifestyles. And so there was a kind of phrase that was coined in the, in the early 1970s, a kind of bright stinginess, an akarui kechi, which is a stinginess that is supposed to be atten attentive to issues of you know, frugality and not wasting, but is not supposed to mean going without, that you are supposed to still be able to enjoy your bright middle-class life. Uh, and so that's kind of the 1970s. The 1980s is, um, is a decade of, as we kind of think of it, mass consumption of affluence, of excess. But at the same time, it was in the 1980s that there started to be expressions of, is this all that affluence is about? Has affluence delivered the kinds of lifestyles? Has it delivered the satisfaction and the happiness and the sense of fulfillment that was promised? And there are increasingly voices that are saying, this is not real affluence. This is not true affluence. And um, 
so that starts to be voiced in the 1980s. And then that idea really flourishes in the 1990s and the 2000s in the context of economic downturn. A real question of what does real affluence look like? And especially in the 2000s, there's much more emphasis on the idea of what we might call an affluence of the heart or kind of kokoro no yutakasa, some kind of spiritual, psychological um, affluence that is that does assume a certain level of financial wealth, but is not just about that, that is supposed to transcend financial wealth. And so you start to see, for example, in advice literature about saving money, uh, advice given not to save money for the sake of just for kind of scrimping or to, to get, get by, but also just to how do you enjoy those kinds of ways of saving money. Uh, and there are more and more statements in the literature about saving money that the purpose of saving money is not just about the money itself, but it's about kind of thinking about your own life uh, and the beauties that there might be, in fact, in a more simple life that is not replete with things and financial wealth. You also see, even in the literature um, intended mainly for business people and businessmen in particular, about saving time and efficiency, uh, some of the most prominent uh, advice writers in this genre of literature saying, you know, I've been, I've been extolling the virtues of efficiency now for decades. And I realize that it's become to, it's reached the point where efficiency itself has become the goal without thinking about the ends, what really is supposed to be the, the end goal or the meaning of, you know, being more efficient in the workplace. And increasingly urging people to think about what it is that brings meaning to their day-to-day life. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.